technically our second podcast in the new year that's true but now but that was a backward-looking podcast because we forward, talked about the ever biggest forward things. Christian and now Center. we begin a yeah, new year it's true it's true new year new you mm. no it is the same me that's joe patrice from above the law uh <laughs> i am joined by Catherine rubino and chris williams how are you all good good this show is our you know, weekly look at the stories from the week that was in legal. And so here we are. Uh, but of course, we always begin uh, as, you know, with a little small talk. Small our small talk. talk section. I actually have a follow up to my small talk. Go for it. Last uh, episode, we talked, I talked about the, my poor customer servers at the Taylor Swift official yes. website. Yes, well, I I've that. got, have follow up. They are refunding my money and still shipping me the products Wow. late. I still haven't gotten a shipping confirmation number, mind you, but eventually I will be made whole. Wow. No, more than whole. Sure. Yeah. But I feel like that's like the minimum they could do. I mean, I literally ordered it over a month ago. No, that sounds great. So. I didn't know we had uh, listeners. That's the only, that's the only thing that made that. That's the person that pops to mind. It was to heard you on the podcast. We're like, wait, didn't I know this president's order? <laughs> <laughs> the PR team was like, get on this stat. <laughs> that or off, they were doing. You got to shake off this bad review. Oh. Or was oh there you go. Well, I think it was a much larger problem than my order, and it was a massive issue that they had that they're trying to make right. Yeah. Good follow-up. Good follow-up on, on good for Taylor there. Anybody Speaking of else? good follows up, yes. have y'all seen the Cat Williams-Shannon Sharp interview? Amazing. <laughs> oh, my. Uh, it, was, yeah. it was wonderful. So my undergraduate uh, thesis, I did it on uh, comedy and speaking truth to power. Mm-hmm. My question was, can, so like the, the, the Greek word for it is a, a parisia, uh, speaking truth to power. Like the person that does it is a parisite. And my okay. question was, can specifically, can black comedians be Parisites? One of the contexts talking about racism, because like, you know, it's kind of like quotidian every day. Like, you know, there's a there's an old Dave Chappelle joke. He's like, oh, apparently people, black people are getting beat by the police like flat cat, like like pancakes or something, you know. But then there's also like the the issue of can you still can you still speak truth to power when power is diffused? Like we used to be in the context of a king, but when it's still like a issue of a systemic uh, violence right. like how do you there's no there's no figurehead for racism outside of trump you know but you know like how do you <laughs> how do you do that but it was but it was cool to see cat williams do what i what, I, what kind of felt like is speaking truth to power is maybe not as much as like a you know he was clearing his name there might be related concepts but yeah <laughs> like i mean because like cat is cat is big and like like black circles but like as far as like a like white audiences i don't think they've really seen much of him since Friday, if that maybe some maybe some wilding out. I don't want to like, I don't want to throw dirt on his name and end up on Shannon Sharp again. But like seeing him come up, big names in comedy like Cat Williams and Steve Harvey and Cedric the Entertainer to the, to the degree that Cedric is a big name. It was it was it was just refreshing to see. Mm-hmm. And the internet had receipts for like everything because like it, things felt true when he was saying them. And there were like a couple bars. He was like, "How are you one of the original kings of comedy when you're not the first one?" Like just throwing stack, going like flaming everybody who ever said something bad about him on the show and it was it was just it was just really cool to see it was like t- 
two hours and 40 minutes I sat down for it. I felt like I was watching a lecture. I was like, this is wonderful. <laughs> Meanwhile, I was digging out of a snowstorm. So, oh, yeah. Yeah. So, snow, it ended up being snow about, definitely snowed. Yeah. It ended up being about eight inches, and I managed to get myself out of it. So, that was Woo-hoo! nice. Thank yeah. God for rain. Oh, well, yeah, my cleanup included looking at the window and being like, ah, oh, well. mm-hmm. yeah, no, it uh, it came down, but it, it it was reasonably or like it wasn't, you know, how sometimes you get that like really overly wet snow that's like impossible to shovel. And mm-hmm. it wasn't that it was it was decently powdery. And so, yeah, I think that also helps when you're early to the shoveling party. I've certainly anticipated rain in my past and not gotten it and instead had very, very heavy snow to deal with. Did you salt? Yeah, yep, yep, yep. Or fake salt, you know, calcium something or other. There's some compound whose job it is to melt snow. I but not that. kill your all your future crops? Theoretically, not, not kill all my plants. Yeah, anyway. So, okay, so that that's a good, we had a good hefty uh, small talk there. All right, let's talk. Uh, biggest story of the week, uh, the Supreme Court, well, not the Supreme Court, the Office of the Chief Justice of the United States has an obligation to report uh, at the end of the year. It's, it's sort of like their State of the Union address, right, just for the judiciary. And, you know, like, what do you think of when you think of an annual report? You know, uh, these are the problems we've tackled. These mm-hmm. are our successes of the year. That's, successes, you, you failures, know, challenges, yeah. plans for Looking the future. Forward, yeah. yeah, I think it's all accurate. You know, specifically of the year wasn't like the main thing from that from like 1904. Well, OK, so this year uh, he decided. So this year he decided to talk about A.I., which to the extent it has some tangential. Uh, it, it is a big story in legal tech, I suppose. That said. He did not really focus on that. He instead focused on whether or not judges would be replaced by AI, which he said they wouldn't, you know, good for him to think that his own job is super important and can't be replaced by AI. But in a world where... In a world. Right. In a world where two Supreme Court justices have been tagged with taking hundreds of thousands of dollars in gifts and bribes from people, and we've had a... You know, we've had nationwide injunction problems, and uh, there's a supposedly a new ethics code that nobody trusts. Uh, you would think that maybe these issues would show up in the report. However, he instead decided to wax philosophic about whether or not he can be replaced by a robot anytime soon. Uh, with a, as you pointed out, Chris, uh, with a, it wasn't even hey, here's what's going on in AI. It was a series of digressions into the history of the typewriter, how scriveners, clerks used to be scriveners who had to take shorthand. It just goes on, it drones on and on about all this stuff. Uh, and it's, I don't know, it, it, just, it felt, like, felt like what I think it really is, which is he has Distraction? Utter, yeah. utter contempt for the audience, uh, for the American public. And he has, ever since, about three years ago, he tackled this job you know, with seriousness. And uh, he outlined a series of, at the time, important issues uh, dealing with ethics and with harassment in the workplace. He then proposed lackluster to mealy-mouthed somewhere in that zone responses (laughs) to it and got dragged. And since then, his annual reports have only been these sorts of... Theoretical kind. Just not even theoretical, just digression. They, They read like... 
they read like that person who sends you a Christmas card that has uh, a, a long thing in it that's like, well, Billy started school this year. Yeah, they read like that kind of a, a that, missive. That, that actually sounds more re- relevant to the Maybe year that was as opposed to, you know, his thoughts on the typewriter. Yeah, well, you know, one thing that Ellie Mistal, former co-host of this show, pointed out in his write-up of this story was that the true irony of this, of course, is as Roberts goes, well, no one could ever replace the really serious, nuanced work that we do as judges. The irony is this is the same judge who used his entire Senate nomination hearings to say, judges just call balls and strikes. We don't really get into these. Right, like yeah. umpires have literally yeah. been replaced by technology. Right, right. So maybe, like, maybe, yeah. maybe that was a bad analogy, friend. Yeah. But also, I think that analogy was particularly problematic and really did a lot to erode the general public's anger towards um, originalist sorts mm-hmm. of judges. It made it seem like, well, this is just this is just what the what the philosophy would say. This is just the way yeah. it is, as opposed to you know a very deliberate political set of ideals that are being advanced. These are policy goals that are being advanced through a certain set of you know court decisions and calling it balls and strikes as opposed to, you know, what he's actually doing, I think really had an impact on how the public perceived the role of the judiciary for a long time. I just really wish somebody that like the, when he said that, it was like, you know how often umpires cheat? (laughs) 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 Like, I really think it was, this should have got nipped early on in the bud. This should not, but it's been a talking point later. So I'm like, like, People, we know, but people, money, money, people bet on these games. Like you want to use a thing that is a major aspect of gambling in the U.S. as the standard for what a perfect judge is. Are you fucking kidding me? Nobody <laughs> so, mentioned that decades ago. So, the, so yeah. So there's. It is clear that the judiciary does a lot more uh, at this juncture than that, <laughs> in both good and bad ways. It is ridiculous to just plug in. Blackstone's commentaries or whatever and say this is what the law is. That Clarence said, Thomas has been getting paid under the table for like the last 25 years. I don't right. know how easy we can be like, it's clear, it's better now than this earlier. But it's also true that the the take on AI was fairly sophomoric too. I mean, it read like as somebody, so I cover this legal tech space. I know we don't talk about it on this particular show as much, that aspect of my beat. But I meet with these people who are developing these algorithms and trying to apply them to law. And the write-up that Roberts provided read like what people talked about in 2013. It seemed wholly divorced from where AI is right now, with the possible exception of he talked about hallucinations, which became fairly important this year. But they became important not because the tech is bad, but because the inputs. <laughs> lazy lawyers use tech badly. So they, they tried to use consumer-facing consumer-facing generative AI, which is not going to be backed by good data. And then they'd refuse to check the cases. So, I mean, that's the problem. And that has nothing to do with the technology itself. So, I don't know. I'm not surprised that John Roberts's tech take is from 10 years ago. That actually seems pretty advanced for (laughs) every other thing I know about him. (laughs) If only he was pushing us back 10 years. I just want to say shout out to the one person who was so excited on the genealogy of AI that they were like, ooh, I wonder what the chief justice thinks about typewriters. Because if you want to talk about judges being out of touch, (laughs) being like this straight, like, oh, I'll talk about a typewriter. That's basically the same as ChatGPT. It was unreal. 
Yeah, and, it would, and that's really what people want to hear from me, not, you know, the thousands and thousands of words that have been poured in major publications impugning the reputation and ethics of your associate justices. It really would. It really is like if the State of the Union address came around and the president took the podium and just talked about the theme for the Easter egg hunt that year, you know, <laughs> like, it, like talking about the least important, dumbest thing that the office of the president can do. It really is embarrassing. Teen Vogue could have done a better review. Teen Vogue did a better review. Teen, teen Vogue, I, I, Teen Vogue's like a quality publication. I, yeah. they're like the ProPublica yeah. of teenagers now. Yeah. Yes, I think that's a weirdly fair analogy. McDermott, Will, and Emery is Vault's number one law firm for associate satisfaction, three years running. Why? Because they're doing big law better. At McDermott, you define what your success looks like. They help you achieve it. McDermott's award-winning professional development program and hands-on mentorship propel you toward your goals, while the industry-leading wellness benefits help you feel your best so you can do your best. Want to see how your life could be better at McDermott? Head to mwe.com slash above the law. Calidus AI cleverly supports you by suggesting relevant law to address your complex issues. Put in simple questions or longer fact patterns, then Calidus asks you to confirm if points are salient before proceeding. Use Calidus to check if you found all the key concepts, cases, and statutes. Calidus turns that into a high-quality, customer-ready document. Handle complexity confidently with Legal's most advanced AI platform. Get $90 off your first two months. Use promo code Joe at CalidusAI.com. That's C-A-L-L-I-D-U-S-A-I.com. Okay, we unfortunately stay in the Supreme Court world for a little bit. Uh, this is a story that came in two acts r around the end of the year. Professor Stephen Calabresi, who's noted as one of the, one of the original founders of the Federalist Society, though the Federalist Society ran a purge and told him he wasn't allowed to call himself that anymore. But I guess they because he acknowledged racism exists. He did acknowledge he, he said racism existed. So they purged him. Uh, he, however, names himself as a co-founder in this. Definitely how you want one of the most important uh, judicial philosophies <laughs> to be described. Right. So, <laughs> well, we, we kicked you out when you acknowledged racism. Yeah. So. <laughs> So he's had a he's had an interesting couple of years. Anyway, he wrote an, a piece in the uh, Volux blog where he said that Clarence Thomas was the least it was incorruptible and the best Supreme Court justice who's ever served. Oh, so that's how he got back in with and, those but, people. Okay, so this is ridiculous in a lot of ways. So fuck the good marshal. Yeah. So, well, right. Um, <laughs> he's against all of these folks. Uh, he says he's better than Scalia. Even uh, he talks about how because he's just so originalist, you know, he really he really trumped up. The, I have a black friend card. That's what this was. Like whenever somebody right. like I, this is this was like the this was the fat sock version of I would have voted for Obama a third time. Oh, right. So he at the end of this bit, <laughs> yes, the end of this great. Analogy. Yeah. Yeah. The, at the end of this bit, though, he goes on a, a run about how. Clarence Thomas grew up poor, so he has every right to take money from wealthy people because he grew up poor and Congress doesn't pay judges enough, so therefore taking bribes is cool. 
Yeah. Look, if, that, if, it's that last part that really does it, that, that really undoes all the work of, you know, maybe this is just uh, redistribution of wealth and not yeah. something maybe. <laughs> no, 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 no. Oh, so close. If we if this is now the standard for historically disenfranchised black people who grew up poor, this is what it takes to make it OK for them to take from wealthy people. We need to have a different conversation about how we talk about rioting and looting <laughs> yeah. because there's been a lot of coverage that would suggest being poor and black is not enough to take from the wealthy i'm just saying historically <laughs> this is new because there's because there is there's cherry hill is right across the street from me if this is the case <laughs> me and my friends are rioting he gets immediately mocked uh, by all corners uh i i take a i take a little bit of an outsider stance on it i say that well, you don't think it's good, so it's not that outsider. Well, right. So, so I don't think – a lot of people said, you know, has he lost his damn mind, which is certainly a possibility I, I hold out there. <laughs> but I, I thought it was almost bad satire. Like, like he was trying to do a it's bit. It's not that like, good. It's not that it's good. It's so over the top that you can't really believe that this guy is serious. Like he's clearly doing a bit, right? Do you think he was swifting? I, 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 like Jonathan Swift. I just – yeah, no, I no, I know what you mean. He, uh, yeah, like it, not it, Taylor. It I think read like fair. a modest proposal kind of a situation, right? You know. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, anyway, so I that that was what happened first. Uh, he has since been responded to the criticism by arguing that no, no, he really is the best, and he wrote a follow up, which leaves me now wondering if maybe, maybe he is serious about this. Although in his certainly, he's uh, he's definitely being serious, Joe. In his in his follow up, though, he talks a lot about how one of the virtues of Clarence Thomas is, you know, he is modest and and not much of a traveler. And the the initial allegations were about how he took hundreds of thousands of dollars <laughs> in vacations. Like, given that, given that, well, putting but, the words, but he is modest, like, Joe. He he had his rich friends buy him an RV so he yes. could be. Well, that that's much more of an of the people method of transport. I, I'm just saying that, like. He Calabrese didn't have to flag that language, right? And like by doing it, I feel like he's almost lampshading. Like this is clearly crazy, and I want you to understand that this is crazy. I think you're thinking too much about this. I know. I like like I think you've come across like you're you're through the Rubicon. You're through the looking glass, over the Rubicon, whatever it is. You you no, stop it. It is what it is. And when somebody tells you who they are, (laughs) believe them. I mean, yeah, I. It's just so laughably bad as a as that's a piece. A, that that's what it is. Yeah, it, it is not more complex than just bad. Well, it, one of the interesting <laughs> aspects of it, uh, and that needs perhaps to be somebody's it was, tattoo is not more <laughs> complex than just bad. <laughs> and not perhaps mine. this, yeah, bro, 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 <laughs> perhaps this was unintentional. But I do think that there's a theme that happens in this work, especially where it's saying that he is both incorruptible and the, the, the best. So, so when it comes to this question of whether or not Clarence Thomas taking a bunch of bribes is bad. Which isn't a question, by the way. Well, no, it is. I mean, it is a question because the Supreme Court basically legalized bribery in the McDonald case. So as a criminal matter, as a colloquial matter, we can call them bribes. As a criminal matter, it probably okay. isn't one because there are no laws anymore. Uh, well, it's a bribe. <laughs> but in the colloquial discussion about bribery, you say, well, but he didn't, Clarence Thomas wasn't like about to roll out with a, 
you know, let's recognize. Right. He wasn't joining Sotomayor in right. a decision, but for the bribe. So the ar- yeah, so the argument is it's not a but for situation. So like, how can this really be corrupt? Now, the flip side of this, of course, is one of us, I think it was you, Chris, uh, wrote a piece after ProPublica dug up some receipts that Clarence Thomas spent the turn of the century, uh, the turn of the 21st century, rolling around to every moneyed right-wing interest and going, wow, it'd be a, be a real shame if I were to retire uh, while Bill Clinton was president. And right, yeah. yeah, so get, given that, I actually thought that what was interesting is Calabrese's piece by juxtaposing this corruption point with the, he's the best, he's even better than Antonin Scalia, he's the greatest of all time, kind of unintentionally proved the argument for why this is corrupt. Because no, he didn't change his mind over it, but the fact that the right views him as uniquely better than even somebody like Scalia proves that he did, he was giving a kind of a quid pro quo, and the quid pro quo was, you give me this money or I'll disappear and my unique greatness will and will be gone. And my replacement, even, you know, at the time could have been somebody more liberal, but even if his replacement is somebody like Neil Gorsuch, who's going to, you know, rule in Bostock that, you know, LGBTQ people are protected by discrimination laws. Like, well, that's a reason why you've got to keep me. That's why you've got to keep me flush in cash. And like, that is what we mean. And so I thought that we, I thought even if it was unintentional, it was very interesting the way in which he structured this argument by juxtaposing best and corrupt. He kind of proved the argument for why this could be corrupt, even if you aren't sure, you know, that is more than he thought about this. Uh, maybe I, 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 went, uh, I, think, I think there is something interesting here. Uh, if memory serves, I think there's a tendency for judges over time to become more liberal. Mm-hmm. In their outlooks, I think Clarence is one of the people that is if he's either stayed as rightward or has only went rightward. Oh God, yeah. So, oh, like, yeah. given that he's an anomaly in that respect, I do find it interesting that one of the things he was saying was, "Oh, sure, it would be the same if somebody replaced me with a more liberal judge." Like the fact that he just gotten more right leaning over time in light of protecting the right part of the judge of the judiciary in the same way that like the mafia protects small businesses. Like I just find that interesting. <laughs> no, that that's a great analogy for it. Interesting. I will continue to monator this situation if for nothing else my own mental health to figure out whether or not. <laughs> Are you sure I it's can not gonna get worse than you monitor this? Yeah, no. I just, <laughs> have you considered yeah. monitoring Mercury? <laughs> <laughs> hey Gee, what's up? Just having some lunch, Conrad. Hey, Gee, do you see that billboard out there? Oh, you mean that guy out there in the gray suit? Yeah, the gray suit guy. Order up. There's uh, all those beautiful, rich, leather-bound books in the background. That is exactly the one. That's J.D. McGuffin at Law. He'll fight for you! I bet you he has got so many years of experience. Like decades and decades. And I bet, Gee, I bet he even went to a law school. Are you a lawyer? Do you suffer from dull marketing and a lack of positioning in a crowded legal marketplace? Sit down with Guy and Conrad for Lunch Hour Legal Marketing on the Legal Talk Network, available wherever podcasts are found. All right, we're back. Uh, This is a story that we didn't didn't necessarily write one story about this, but it's an interesting, interesting conversation that's happening out there that has legal overtones, so it's worth talking about. We just got off of the campaign to force Claudine Gay out of her position as the president of Harvard for 
a lot of throw spaghetti at the wall reasons, but ultimately most folks landed on this idea that it, uh, she committed plagiarism. Uh, and by plagiarism, uh, the examples that they showed were that she like quoted directly from statutes when she wrote about them, which... Ooh, that's exactly what you'd want to do. Yeah, not, Wait, not only what? not plagiarism, but also I think... Um, Best practices? Yeah, also basic responsibility. <laughs> like you you can't make up the words uh, to these things. Right. Well, actually you can, and that's the standard she should have held, been held to, just right. her specifically. Right, so the, this whole plagiarism conversation uh, is interesting, especially as it kind of intersects with law, because this is a situation where they were accusing her of plagiarism, even though one of the things that key things she was doing was quoting from a statute, which got me thinking about the overlap that it has with this case that came up recently that we did write about of a law firm is suing another law firm for copying their motion, claiming that another best practices. <laughs> yeah, uh, claiming that they have a copyright interest in the motion and that it was plagiarized, a motion that they had filed on the yeah, record you, you already. You can't copyright it something that's publicly available, right? I, well, I mean, obviously you can, right? Like a book. Sure, like, yeah. sure. But publicly but, filed, sorry. Uh, but, but I mean, I do think that's a good point, though. I think the argument is that once it's on the docket, it's functionally kind of a public domain thing, that mm -hmm. this is there, like Steamboat Willie, it's there for anybody Aww. to use, you know? I can't wait for the Steamboat Willie lawsuits because people are going to fuck it up. Yeah, I think that's true. People are, because it is very limited. You can't just take it's Mickey Mouse. It's super limited. They're going to be like, exactly. oh, I'm going to be creative and put Steamboat Mickey in red shorts. No, you're getting sued. You're losing your house. Yeah. <laughs> that's what's happening. No, I, I, I do think that the uh, way that the discourse has evolved about plagiarism has been very problematic for academic standards and for legal standards as well. I think that what people are being accused of doing is what you're actually taught, I think, in, in practice, in academia, when you're actually quoting, when you're talking about a statute, you need the words of the statute. That remains true, even though Claudine Gay does not have her job. Yeah. It, it is yeah, weird when on. you end up splicing standards, like, for example, like the, the, the standard of what constitutes bribery earlier, like colloquially, we know what Clarence is doing, but like legally speaking, blah, blah, blah. So it's a similar thing in like, plagiarizing like if a person looks at it like side by side they're the same words of course they're copying like duh but it's different in the legal setting well so this also then spills over because one of the you know it starts becoming gotcha 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 between all these folks people start pointing out that justice gorsuch wrote a book back when he was a judge and people are like you know he quotes the same stuff here and just really mundane facts being really yeah, so many way, ways to t say the basic facts of of, a, of a case so, yeah. uh, like un, again yeah. some quotes from statutes it just it just speak it speaks to how i think plagiarism to the extent it's an issue at all is misunderstood as it applies to the legal context because you know plagiarism is your friend here in the law if you aren't if you aren't tying yourself to the same language over and over again, you're kind of entering lawlessness. <laughs> yeah, you, you want to use the language the courts have already interpreted, not coming up with your new ones. And yeah, that one would help. You are a better lawyer when you do that. This is not an excuse for students to plagiarize, though. Just let that be known. Sure. So, so like there are different issues at play in these different situations, right? So when you're dealing with uh, students, whatever, may, it might be different. You know, Brian Fry, a law professor, also has uh, done a lot of work on the idea that 
plagiarism shouldn't be a problem at all. Uh, that it's it's really bad that we artificially limit our you know intellectual inquiry this way. I think it's a very interesting take. I think yeah, I think a lot of the criticisms are true. It seems like it's a very ticky tack rule that is often used for you know to punish people for no good reason. That said. I do think that a lot of the critics of plagiarism rules undersell the risk that it reinforces kind of the hierarchies that exist in academia, that like the well-known, already established law professor, you know, takes from their students and doesn't give them credit and they get more famous, the student doesn't get any credit. Well, I mean, there, I, you know? I do think there's a line there too, right? I think that in in works that there are correct citations, even if the quotation marks aren't exactly where they need to be. I think if the citation is there, I'm I, I'm a lot more forgiving of it than if there's no recognition of anybody who had that idea before you. Yeah, I just kind of took it as, I, I, I think there might be some reason to say that it depends on the positions of the parties. I think that sure. if, if if you're stealing from somebody who's less powerful, the student, well, the grad student. You know. I, I think that that's probably a lot more limited, though, than peers. Or is it a, what's the power dynamic when someone's at a research institution versus a community college yeah. versus, you know, this school versus that school? I think that that gets a little confusing uh, and harder to adjudicate. I think when there are clear power dynamics, if somebody's working for you or you have that sort of a, a pre-existing relationship, that's one thing. But I think that it could get quite confusing. My hot take is I think there should be more of citation that's just, this was revealed to me in a dream. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, when did that one Well, there, there's our new tattoo quote. This <laughs> no, was I mean, that, to that's me a, a real thing he's referencing. <laughs> I can't remember what it was. Yeah, it was, it was some judge. So it's relevant, yeah. but yeah, but like we need to bring it's back the plagiarism. The <laughs> we need we need to bring back the prophetic in, ju in the judiciary because too much yeah. of this shit is predictable. Of course, all the right leaning judges vote this way. We need some anomalies, and who better to do that than oracles and, or or AI? Uh, oh, so, there we go. Ooh. Bringing everything full circle. Anyway, thanks for listening. You should be subscribed to the show so they get new episodes when they come out. You should leave it reviews, write something, do stars, yada, yada, yada. You should be listening to The Jabot, Catherine's other show. I'm a guest on the Legal Tech Week Journalist Roundtable. You should check out the other offerings of the Legal Talk Network. Uh, read Above the Law. That way you see these and other stories before we talk about them here. Uh, it's at ATL Blog on the Twitters. I'm at Joseph Patrice. She's at Catherine One. Chris is at Rights for Rent. Most of us... I I don't think the publication, is, I don't think Above the Law is, but the rest of us are all over at Blue Sky as well, although I'm Joe Patrice over there. And uh, with that, I think we're done. Peace. If you're a lawyer running a solo or small firm and you're looking for other lawyers to talk through issues you're currently facing in your practice, join the Unbillable Hours Community Roundtable, a free virtual event on the third Thursday of every month. Lawyers from all over the country come together and meet with me, lawyer and law firm management consultant Christopher T. Anderson, to discuss best practices on topics such as marketing, client acquisition, hiring and firing, and time management. The conversation is free to join, but requires a simple reservation. The link to RSVP can be found on the Unbillable Hour page at LegalTalkNetwork.com. We'll see you there.